0: The story is not a glossy story. It is a gritty story of defiance against inhumanity. And I wanted the art to reflect that. I took inspiration from the films of Eisenstein in the 1920s in Russia, because he used a lot of these close-ups of faces. And so when it came to doing this book, I wanted to incorporate that.
1: This project, the graphic novel, rose out of a very deep belief that Benjamin Lay is probably one of the most important figures in American history that most people don't know about.
2: David Lester, the artist, Marcus Redeker, the historian, the force behind Prophet Against Slavery, a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show. Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Marcus Rediker back to the show for the third time. first joined us with his book and video project Ghosts of Amistad. Then he brought us the amazing story of the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Today he joins us with artist David Lester. Their project Prophet Against Slavery, a graphic novel, is about Benjamin Lay. David, welcome. Marcus, welcome back. I know the story of Benjamin Lay, for me, begins with Marcus's book, but why this project as a collaboration, and where does the story begin for the two
1: of you? Well, Janice, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be with you again. This, this project, the graphic novel, uh, grows out of a very deep belief that I hold that Benjamin Lay is probably one of the most important figures in American history that most people don't know about. And so uh, part of my work after writing The Fearless Benjamin Lay was to try to find as many ways as I could to make his story known to the broadest possible public. And the reason for that quite simply, Janice, is because I think uh, Benjamin Lay embodies genuinely democratic and egalitarian ideals uh, and is someone who uh, really can be a very important part of our thinking about the present and the future and i think he's especially significant in this time of uh, debate about whether for example slave owners are suitable as national heroes uh, here's someone who is not only passionately opposed to slavery but also Uh, against class inequality, gender inequality, concerned about the environment, a vegetarian uh, in favor of animal rights. And he does embody, I think, uh, quite a comprehensive set of progressive ideals. So it was my good fortune to to talk with a, a good friend, Paul Buell, who has done a lot of work with graphic novels and to propose that we work together to bring the Benjamin Lay story into this new format. And it was Paul who recommended uh, David Lester. And that has been a very happy combination ever since.
2: It is an extraordinary collaboration. I mean, when you refer to someone who lived 300 years ago, my goodness, it David's work literally just screams him off the page, you know, I mean, just makes him Benjamin Lay so contemporary. He may be in costume for contemporary life, but he's just so important. And so, David, I am thrilled to be able to, from your vision, what want to do it? The
0: journey of that is that I just finished a book called 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike. And I should say that I'm based in Canada, in Vancouver, and uh, I had to do that book, a uh, hundred-page book, in basically 53 days. It was an incredibly tight deadline. I was exhausted from the process. I thought I would never finish it. Uh, you know, it's one of those intense things, making a graphic novel. But in that time frame is in, is sort of insane, because uh, one might spend a year or a year and a half on making such a graphic novel as we've done with Benjamin Lay, which is what happened. And uh, and so. I was ready for a break. And, uh, but then Paul wrote me about this book uh, on Benjamin Lay. And the thing is, I'd never heard of Benjamin Lay. And I didn't know much about the 18th century or the abolition movement or Quakerism. But I read Marcus's book, and I found uh, it uh, incredibly compelling, The Fearless Benjamin Lay. And I realized, like, I, I, uh, I needed to do this book. This was a very important story that very few people knew about. And uh, And so that totally motivated after I should say turning the kind of project down a number of times just because seemed logistically difficult, but uh, you know. (laughs) I I wised up and uh, and uh, agreed to do the project and so that's uh, and of course we had to work through, how would we do this project. Who would write write the script? Uh, Because I wasn't sure whether, you know, Paul would write it or, or Marcus would be involved. And so it ended up being that it made more sense for me to do it as the graphic novelist. And then we worked in collaboration. So I would submit the draft of the text to Marcus and Paul, and they would get back to me with changes. And, and it was a great partnership because their changes were all good. I wrote way too much in the in the script because there was so much great work in Marcus's book that I wanted to cram in into the graphic novel, but you realize in the graphic novel form, you don't want to overburden the drawings with text. So you want to give the the uh, let the book breathe a bit, you don't have endless pages. So in that way, uh, Marcus and Paul suggested dropping certain scenes, uh, moving them around in other cases and shortening and making other changes like that, but it was all uh, to make the script better and shorter. And uh, I felt very happy about that whole process, because it was a bit a bit unclear at first how we would proceed, you know, because I've made other books in the past. And, and in some cases, it's uh, a very singular vision that you have as a graphic novelist. But my last book 1919 was a collaboration as well. So, so that's kind of how it all, all came together. And then I became deep in the 18th century, and all things Benjamin Lay. And the process of making a book like this is that you have to, uh, as the uh, illustrator, you have to figure out what did people look like, you know, what did they dress like in the 18th century? What did they, what kind of food did they eat? What utensils did they have? What kind of hairstyles? What kind of shoes? What kind of streets were there? What kind of lighting did they have? Candles or whatever it was? And uh, because there are no photographs to reference. It's only select illustrations and often those are done by wealthy people and they're not necessarily doing the kind of illustrations of people like Benjamin Lay. So it was an intense process of research on my part as well, because again, as a graphic novel, you're the director, the cinematographer, the costume designer, the makeup artist, the hair stylist. And one other thing, which uh, is was the concern of how do we depict how they talk? Because they talk differently then, and that was a discussion that we've had, and also with a current book that we're working on on Pirates uh, with, um, Marcus and Paul. You know, they use thou the, hours, yes, the, the Quaker language. How much we eat? exactly. Mm-hmm. So how much do we do that? But then it would create a distance with with um with readers if they don't kind of relate to that way of talking, but we want to give a sense of it. And so that's, I think our was our compromise, I think, Marcus, wasn't it? Was to give a sense of how people spoke without burdening people with the I mean, and also, I would add that a certain amount of the dialogue is actually some direct quotes uh, from things that Benjamin wrote and stuff. So we did keep the flavor of it as well. But uh, it was a discussion as to how we should proceed on that level.
2: As a reader, viewer of the book, it made me think about just the genre. And of course, before this most recent iteration of the, the education of Janice, I saw, I initially saw graphic novels and said, well, what's the difference between a comic book and a graphic novel? And, and I do want you to speak to that. But one of the things that I found was the holdover was the superhero-ness of it, especially because of who you have selected. So how do you deal with the character and why this, just as a character, why this character and how he's going to come across and his, soup. in the case of Benjamin Lay, his superhero-ness.
0: He is a superhero in a sense, yes. But I tried to avoid the traditional superhero aesthetics. A, that's uh, not what I wanted to do. And also B, I can't really draw superheroes. So one is limited by their own uh, sense of aesthetics and that's the problem
2: with the superheroes the previous superheroes because as far as i'm concerned you have found the language to draw this superhero i mean it it's extraordinary the expressions on his face and and um, yeah
0: that, i mean that's what i wanted i wanted to create a gritty smoky sense of the 18th century so that that the reader felt transported back 300 years ago and so that's why we didn't go for a glossy style of drawing and we kept it it's black and white and and it has my heavy line drawings on it is that I wanted it to not feel I the story is totally contemporary in many ways I wanted the reader to feel they were somewhere else and they had been transported and I wanted the art to be gritty uh, as I said and uh, because I I, because the story is not a glossy story it is a gritty story of defiance against inhumanity and i wanted the art to reflect that and i'm a a big believer that the art should reflect what the content is rather than oh you're just a hired hand to do this illustration of a book it needs to be more than that and that's what i tried to do so So I'm glad if you, you know, you felt his presence there. And I really felt it was important to have individual drawings of congregation and their reactions negatively and positively to uh, Benjamin. I wanted to isolate their faces because I didn't want them to be lost in the crowd. I wanted them, uh, us to look at them for good and bad reasons. I took inspiration from the films of Eisenstein in the 1920s in Russia, because he used a lot of these close-ups of faces. And I really thought that's, I really responded to that myself. And so when it came to doing this book, I wanted to incorporate that into So
2: what was the first illustration that you actually did that you decided belonged in the book so that we can see it too, actually?
0: Well, the opening sequence was done in advance of deciding where the book was gonna be published uh, and sorting all that out. We did an advance kind of the first 20 pages or so, and then I cut that down. But that's, I started it right basically from the beginning of the script, which is, you know, uh, we introduce this character he's a figure that's walking through the landscape and he's a small figure we don't know who he is we don't know where he's going and then he he ends up at this uh, pivotal moment in benjamin's life which is he he confronts the quaker establishment with his perhaps greatest form of guerrilla theater and but prior to that we don't know who he is. He's just a mysterious character. And so I wanted to open in a very cinematic way like that and not explain everything. And we had discussions among Paul and Marcus about whether it should be explained who this guy is, but I wanted it to be more evocative. That's what my intention was, because I didn't want to tell everybody what is going on here. You, he's just some figure. And in a sense, he's coming from the past too. I wanted to introduce the whole story that way. So, So the first frame that you see in the book is the first drawing that I did of of uh, Benjamin Lay. And also to point out, I really responded to the fact that Marcus started his book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, with that scene as well. And so I realized that this was going to be a good combination because Marcus is thinking, I think, very cinematically in how he started his book. I think how he starts his other books as well.
2: Just being cinematic in that sense, how do you start a book? How did you come to what your first image of? Benjamin Lay
1: would be for us? Well, Janice, I am a powerful believer in using uh, a dramatic event to hook the reader. And, but, it, but it doesn't just work with any event. It needs to be something that has a deep message about the book as a whole and about, in this case, the life of Benjamin Lay. So by beginning with this act of guerrilla theater, I was basically saying, look, here here's a man who, who dares to speak truth to power. This tells you a lot about him. But his protest is designed to be very theatrical. In other words, the people who are in the Quaker meeting house with him are the audience for a drama. He understood that. He wanted things to be this way. He believed that you need to act your ideas out in public. Uh, that's, that's a very important part of his radical message. You have to live the life of the person that you claim to be. So for Benjamin, having done so many dramatic things, the only real problem was deciding which extraordinary event to begin with. But we decided to go with the one where he uh, stabs a, a bladder full of fake blood and sprinkles it on the bodies of the astonished Quaker slave owners. And uh, I must say, David did a tremendous job in uh, representing that. And I would also add that uh, David might not have known who Benjamin Lay was when he started, but he sure is an expert now.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the fact that you begin with that scene, you know, so often today you hear people talk about some of these things and they seem very involved in it but they don't want it to cost them anything and what i really saw in reading your initial book and then graphically in this graphic novel prophet against slavery benjamin lay a graphic novel was that he was not only willing for it to cost him something But he saw very intimately what enslaving other people was costing everyone. And so when we come back, more with our guests today. David Lester, the artist. Marcus Rediker, the author-historian who come together in this extraordinary graphic novel, Prophet Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on The Janus Adams Show with our guests, David Lester, the artist, Marcus Redeker, the historian. Together, they are the force behind a project. It is called Prophet Against Slavery, a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay. And it carries forward the story that Marcus brought us in an earlier show with his book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. I want to ask you both something about this imagery. Toward the end of the book, you have a two-page spread that begins 1782, Philadelphia, four years later. And on the spread, which as you've described, David, earlier, yes, it has this grittiness to it, but it has this Action, as opposed to the freeze frames that many people are accustomed to with a graphic novel, or you know, a, a outgrowth of the quote comic book styles. But this has an action, a sense of action to it. How did you come to that spread, and why did you decide that this, among all the things you could capture, that this was the one that you had to capture?
0: Well. One of the problems I find with creating graphic novels is to create a sense of movement. And, and many artists are can be great draft people, but their depiction of, of movement can often just look like a depiction of movement rather than actual movement or a sense of movement. And so I tried to overcome this throughout the whole book. And I think this spread is an example of it, of how do I depict how uh, Benjamin is, is creating uh, one of his guerrilla theater pieces in a city square? Uh, smashing teacups. And he, he says, I strike a blow, the tyrants who torture those in the Caribbean who produce the sugar to sweeten your tea. So he's making a bold statement there, and one that one must never consume goods born of oppression. And so rather than do a whole bunch of series of small panels, I wanted to just go, we want the sense of the hammer coming down on the cups. And we wanted that to be free of a sense of perspective, but focus on the energy of it and so in that case, uh, I like this spread particularly because it shows the possibilities of the graphic novel form to depict movement, passion and to tell a story all in a two-page spread. This is a, this is just a moment of Benjamin's life and one of the things he did to be a bit wild in how I went about doing it and it's very exciting as an author to get out the paint and start splattering it around and That's one of the fun parts about it to create that sense of energy through the the very tools that you use in gesture with a a brush or a pen, a pencil, and the sense of the paint and the wetness of the paint. And so, I think, in my view, this is the type of work I like to do in graphic novels. It is not all tight, it is very loose. And I think, in this case, it it succeeds at telling a a deep story within just two pages.
2: Within just two pages. Marcus, when you saw this particular
1: spread. What did it mean for you? Well, uh, Janice, I have been, I'd say, somewhat amazed by David's talent from the very beginning of this project. Uh, In other words, I went into this really not knowing a lot about graphic novels being coached by Paul Buell all along the way, and frankly, a little worried about whether the history would be captured. But one of the things that I, I learned over time uh, and this of course was very important was uh, that david himself was extremely serious about the history in other words he he didn't just read the book he comprehended it deeply he understood all the details of benjamin's life and then as he said earlier he went out and did all this research on his own so this this actually made me trust him to imagine the story because an artist imagines a story differently than a writer imagines a story. Even though we we both think with and through images, uh, it's not quite the same process. So uh, I was uh, continually amazed by David's ability to get things right, to uh, to go to the essence of something, uh, his ability to evoke feeling, to evoke motion, movement, clashes of power, I think all these things have been done in a really extraordinary way. So part of uh, my response to David's work has been an experience of joy in watching his creativity as he tells the story, as he sees it. Uh, And I found that the way he saw and executed that story was completely consistent with the way I had seen and done the same thing uh, in the book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay.
2: Now, Marcus, you're a faculty member. And you have worked with younger people, therefore, and trying to involve them and inspire them with your renderings of history for quite a while. Did you learn from students that made you think that a graphic novel would be the way to go, you know, as a professor of history and and as someone who's written Thousands of pages.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. It is. It has been thousands of pages. Well, you know, uh, I, I've always learned a lot from my students uh, and from my children, uh, who are also readers. And I think that uh, what I what I hoped for in this project was to be able to reach new readers with the story of Benjamin Lay to to have the story told in a new and, as I've said, creative manner by David. I think, you know, one of the most important things uh, for young people is that they tend to learn now Visually, uh, I think this is one of the effects of the, uh, the, the culture that is saturated in visual imagery, whether that's in social media, TV, Internet, whatever it may be. So I do think that telling Benjamin Lay's story in this way has a, a real relevance to the moment that we are mm-hmm. in. And what about older readers? What have you heard? Well, I've heard uh, very similar things that uh, younger readers have said, that uh, older readers are also quite taken with this. And I, I should add that the graphic novel is becoming a much more universally popular thing. Uh, It it is true that it has a special appeal for younger people. But I think I find, for example, that more and more professors are using graphic novels in teaching their courses, uh, partly because they think the students will learn things this way that they might not learn in reading a standard history book. So I think there's a creative way in which we reevaluate the learning process through a book like this. My mom was
2: a master teacher for many years, and she used to have a phrase tell me, I listen, teach me, I learn, involve me, I understand. And that was her mantra that she would pass along. And I, that's the sense that I get in reading this graphic novel, this particular one. This is, you know, some of the images, though, when we talk about younger people, we are going through quite a time here in the United States, quite a time worldwide, but quite a time here in the United States with a lot of backward motion and callousness, to be honest about it, and people not wanting to know about America's history that is not the gladiator version and not the Superman hero uh, version either, Uh, but the truth of American history. So here you have a book in which there's no question about the truth. How does that comport for you with what's going on in in the country today? I'm thinking, obviously, in particular about those people who
1: don't want the story told at all. Well, Benjamin has a message for for those people. And the message is, it's, it's actually a quotation that David and I both have been quite taken with, Uh, Benjamin said that, look, if you don't abolish slavery, this will be like poison to your society for a very long time. And of course, uh, even though Quakers abolished slavery, the American nation did not. It went on for quite a long time after Benjamin's death. And we still have the poison in the body politic. So I think Benjamin is saying, look, it's time to speak truth to power. I did it. You've got to do it. And this is really the only way toward a more humane society. So I think it's not only the content of Benjamin's thought, but the way in which he agitated people to face the truth. And he made Janus a lot of enemies in doing that because he deliberately made people uncomfortable. He challenged people. He drew a line in these meetings. and He said, which side are you on? Are you for slavery or are you against it? There is no middle ground. Make your choice. And so I think we face some similar kinds of questions today. Do we want to know the real history? of this country? Or do we not? Or do we want to spend enormous energy denying the history that we have? I think this is a a really big question for us. And I do think uh, Benjamin Lay's story helps us.
2: David, with your artistry, what have you seen in terms of what young people are asking of you from your work?
0: When I've talked to teachers who, who teach uh, history in high school, they said that students are increasingly unable to read longer texts like books. And so graphic novels have become this fundamental teaching tool because it they're very visual now, young people, and uh, and they want things to move along quickly. And also teachers are finding that the engagement is there as well. Like they can make their own graphic novel. They can engage in terms of discourse and critical thinking if they can participate in a very unintimidating form, like a graphic novel, because anybody can essentially pick up a a pen and start uh, doodling and you've got yourself uh, a comic. everybody
2: (laughs) can. Oh, I don't know about
0: that. But people can make marks on paper at at the very least. And and the, the thing about graphic novels, it's pretty wide open in terms of what can be uh, accepted in, in uh, uh, graphically, uh, aesthetically. And so I think that frees up students to engage in a way that uh, we don't see with the intimidation of regular prose, perhaps. And I think that's unfair, but I, I think that's the reality of it. And that's the thing I I get from parents and, and kids is they're just, they are crazy about graphic novels. And I can't totally explain it, but but it, they want to read any possible things beyond superheroes. So history is a fantastic kind of connection to make. And that's why that's been the focus of my work is, is historical events and progressive history. And so I think young people are very much open to that. And that's the reaction I get from people at book events and, and in correspondence.
1: I would agree. I think uh, what David said is, is, is exactly on point. Uh, I think there's a kind of, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of emphasis placed on denying the history we have, but there also are a lot of people who are hungry for it. I think uh, we have, uh, you know, one of the, uh, I think, very important uh, uh, political trends in recent years is that younger people have become much more progressive. Uh, their support for the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example, their involvement in politics. And I think there is really a rapidly growing uh, group of readers out there who are eager to learn the real history and to see what we can uh, take from previous struggles, not only in terms of you know, uh, what can I learn from Benjamin Lay about being a good agitator? Uh, that's a good question. You know, Frederick Douglass, we, we use this quotation in the book. It says uh, you, you won't make progress unless you're willing to agitate. You've got to really get out there and, and uh, challenge people. Uh, so I think that that's part of it. But the other thing is not only can, what we can learn practically, we can take inspiration from these stories. And I think this is something that, uh, that Benjamin Lay really gives us. He fought a kind of lonely battle for a long time. Uh, and he can teach us about the nature of conviction that is required to make progressive change. Uh, and before he died, he learned that the Quakers had taken a first big step and uh, banned Quaker participation in the slave trade. And Benjamin knew that this was the beginning of the end for the Quakers. And it took several more years after he had passed away for the Quakers to become the first group to abolish slavery in their own midst. But Benjamin knew that he had made a big contribution to an important change. And I think uh, in times where people feel like they can't make a difference, you can look at the life of this very unlikely hero Uh, and take tremendous encouragement from that. Uh, Benjamin Lay really fought on his own. He was kind of a lonely prophet in many respects, but he was right.
2: He was right. I also see other themes in in his life. I mean, we have a man who, who was a dwarf, and so he was an outsider for that as well. And for so many people today who are being castigated, as outsiders for things that are just part of their lives, other than they can personally control. It's the way they were made. And we find some people wanting to legislate against accepting people for who they are. And here you have this man who was a dwarf and who had to live with that and make his own way and make his own mark. You have Benjamin Lay. And his, even in these few pages and uh, of a book uh, that have, you know, manifested the way they have, you have the sense of his extraordinary relationship with his wife. You have his sense of other species and animals and his life being at one with with theirs. It's really quite an extraordinary life that he lived, but I, I'm particularly taken by the depth
1: that you bring to it. Well, let me just tell one story, if I may, Janice. Uh, one of the great moments of research for the fearless Benjamin Lay was to discover that a small archive in Germantown, Pennsylvania, had a book that was in Benjamin's library in his cave. And uh, I went there with great excitement to read that book. And you open the book and there in his hand, it says, this book belongs to Benjamin Lay. And I think he wrote it because he lent his books out to friends a lot. And it turns out, with it's extremely exciting, he wrote Marginal Comments on the book. And so one of the comments that he wrote was, he wrote, dear friends, be tender hearted. How wonderful. Yeah, it was beautiful. And this was really one of his highest ideals, to be tender hearted. And one of the things that I love about David's rendition of the story is that he captured that. He captured that tenderness. So Benjamin emerges not just as a defiant superhero, but as a person of full humanity, uh, even though many wanted to treat him as if he wasn't entitled to full humanity because he didn't have the right kind of body. He wasn't from the right class. uh, He didn't have the right ideas or tactics, but he challenged people to treat him with equality at all times. In fact, he demanded it. So in that sense, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that his dwarfism was very closely linked to his sympathy for other people who suffered uh, discrimination uh, and oppression. And and again, I I give uh, so much credit to David for capturing this Deeper reality you've you've mentioned it several times, Janice. You said at the outset that you could feel this character when you read uh, this book, and that's also uh, going back to what your mother said about uh, if you, you can really understand uh, if you can feel so a lot of this has to do with David's ability to evoke a fully human historical figure
2: David's ability to evoke that, but I want to ask about your choice of it from when you decided that Benjamin Lay was someone that you wanted to resurrect
1: yourself, why? I found Benjamin Lay 25 years ago. And I was working on a different project, a book that I wrote with Peter Linebaugh co- called uh, The Many-Headed Hydra sailors, slaves, commoners, and the hidden history of the revolutionary Atlantic. And we were interested in how resistance from below by enslaved people charged the abolitionist movement and helped that movement to develop new ideas. And the 1730s, as it happened, was a time of uh, this very powerful wave of resistance in plantation societies. And Benjamin wrote his book in 1738. Uh, So I actually found the book at that time and thought this man was really fascinating, uh, so much so that I decided he really deserves a book of his own. So rather than use Benjamin Lay in a sort of small part uh, in a big book, uh, I waited and I wrote several other books uh, over a considerable number of years. But finally, I decided it was time to come back to Benjamin Lay. And I think it, it had something to do with the way in which we needed the integrity of his voice. This, this man had a very comprehensive, integrated, radical view of the world. And I think I came back to him simply because I felt like he, he's someone that we needed. It's not that he needs us to pay attention. It's that we need him in the present. And I think that that was the impulse that brought me back to Benjamin Lay after having discovered him a long time ago.
2: You speak about the impact that he had on the Quakers because of his work. But from our last visit, I learned about the amazing impact that you have had because of your work on Quaker society. Tell us about that.
1: One of the most gratifying things about my research on Benjamin Lay was that it helped to advance a discussion within a number of Quaker communities about their own history. And when I went to uh, the Abington uh, Quaker Meeting House, Abington, PA, what I discovered was there were a number of people there who knew about Benjamin Lay. He had worshipped there uh, with his wife, Sarah. They knew about him and they really wanted uh, to make his story central to their own history. And so after I published The book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, uh, I went to give a talk at the Abington Quaker meeting. And this set off a discussion about the fact that Benjamin had been disowned by their meeting. And I said to them, quite frankly, I mean, I gave a lot of thought to "What, what should I say to the Abington Quakers? And my message was, look, you know, he was right at this distance of many years. You know, he was right. So take him back. And they had a very long, complex discussion. And the Abington meeting took the first step of re-embracing Benjamin Lay, saying that uh, he was right and the people who disowned him were wrong. Uh, And then we had the happy and unexpected uh, outcome that the other three Quaker meetings... That had also disowned benjamin lake decided that they too would re-embrace him so uh, benjamin is now um, shall we say in good standing among quakers again having been an outcast for uh, hundreds of years
2: you know we we talk about how we interact with history and use phrase like embracing history you actually have, you know, obviously exceeded that with the story that you've just told us. But I'm also interested in how history embraced you when you actually got to hold in your hand a book that you knew that Benjamin Lay had held in his. When we come back, more with our guests, David Lester and Marcus Redeker and Marcus will tell us about that extraordinary moment. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, A Student of Life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say Thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 Books That Changed the History of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JanusAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S dot and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcasts, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guests, David Lester the artist, Marcus Redeker, the historian, who have brought to us this extraordinary project, Prophet Against Slavery, a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay. There's a third person who is not with us today, but Paul Buell is also part of this extraordinary project. Right before the break, Marcus, I was asking you about what it felt like to actually hold in your hand something that you knew that Benjamin Lay had physically touched. And more than that, he, you know, I mean, he wrote in this book, it it has his actual handwriting. The ink is his. What was that
1: like for you? Well, it's very meaningful. These opportunities of having a kind of material presence of that person uh, make a huge difference. So so in finding this book, this was, this was just tremendously exciting to read the things that Benjamin wrote in those marginal comments. He was like having an intimate conversation with the author of that book, uh, who turned out, by the way, to be a 17th century radical named William Dell. So it was, I was watching a conversation between radicals across the generation. Uh, but this wasn't the only uh, such moment. Uh, it was also very powerful to visit the Abington Quaker Meeting House and the burial ground where Benjamin and Sarah lie in unmarked graves. And to, to feel that place, when I was giving that talk at the Quaker Meeting House, I was standing only about 30 or 40 feet from where Benjamin was buried. He was present in many ways. So I think this is, uh, you know, this is, this is an exciting thing, but it's also a challenge. What can you do to make that life real and resonant? for people and i think the closer you can get to those documents the greater the likelihood that you can make that life real to the reader you david were coming into the
2: life of of benjamin lay was there an iconic moment for you or image for you that changed everything that followed
0: I I finished Benjamin Lay during the demonstrations against the murder of George Floyd in 2020, and so that affected me in terms of I I felt this was a story that was actually remarkably important and contemporary even within that context because Benjamin Lay, he lived in a time where he he called out and challenged his white community and their racism and, and that is what we sort of hope. That came out of Black Lives Matter is one of the things about how do white people become allies? How do they participate in that struggle? And I think Benjamin Lay's life shows a way because his focus was on his calling out the hypocrisy uh, and the tragedy of his own community. And I think that's a, a powerful message to get across to the white community today in terms of the story and in how we can confront uh, systemic racism in society and what can all of us do. And so, the story is, again, con- remarkably contemporary in that aspect of it. And that certainly affected my approach to to the, the remaining work that I had to do on the book after uh, during that, that time period.
2: What's next for each of you? Where do you go from here? David, what about you?
0: Well, Marcus and I and Paul are working on a new book called About uh, Pirates, based on uh, Marcus's book, Villains of All Nations. And uh, so we've taken a similar approach in terms of how we created uh, the script. Although in this one, Marcus actually had a a complete outline of how he wanted it to be. And we worked back and forth on that and and pared it down into... a. a workable script and so i'm in the process of trying to finish the the drawings on that uh that will come out next year from if, musically i have a a, a rock duo that's going to be performing perhaps if the world opens up next year and playing some shows with a feminist band called bikini kill and uh, i have my own side uh, experimental music project bass and guitar that's coming out in a few months with a book and it's a about the the life of the uh, Spanish anarchist Rudy and the Spanish Civil War uh, is the centerpiece of that piece of music. Uh, so so uh, a number of projects. And I also may go back to my uh, book that I was have been working on for many years on the feminist and anarchist Emma Goldman on, and covering The last year in her life which uh, she lived in canada and died in 1940 and i've also had the the great thrill of actually in archives around the world touching the objects that she had 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 touched herself and and uh, as marcus was saying there's an incredible thrill to that to know that's her signature this is her handwritten letter she held this and you hold it too and as and when you're creating and drawing history it's very powerful to have that connection and, and that's a, a longer term project but that's that's it for now I can't
2: wait to ask you more about the Emma Goldman so I'm hoping you'll come back when you do do uh, that or if not before yes. but I'm yes. I, I'm intrigued because she was forced out of the United States. did she essentially not return to Europe but go to Canada instead?
0: No, when she was deported back in, uh, I think it was 1919, she she went to initially to Russia, discovered it was horrible there, and then she ended up uh, working her way throughout Europe and ke- kept getting deported, and eventually ended up in England. And then she felt England was a bit too uh, stiff and uptight. That and her last, <laughs> the last one of the dance party was to come to Canada because <laughs> she had some supporters in Toronto and. And it's like, okay, I guess I'll go to Canada because it was close to the United States and which is where she really wanted to be. And so Canada was the second second best option. And uh, and that's why she. But what's powerful about her and the story I try to tell in that last year is her sense of longevity as a as a radical and as as an activist, which I think she shares with Benjamin Lay's long journey as well. And is that she never gave up right to the moment that she actually died. She was still being an activist from what she could do in Toronto uh, in that isolated place in in 1940. And part of my story is to to give hope to everybody who's an activist out there or wants to be, that it requires a great stamina and integrity and fortitude, which are all things Benjamin Lay had. And they are the signs of a great, great activist and a great fighter for against oppression. Emma Goldman
2: certainly had And she was right. Like, (laughs) <laughs> like Benjamin yes. Lay and she yes. and she yes. was right well, yeah
0: and also the other thing I wanted to say was that the thing about historical characters whether it's um Emma Goldman or Benjamin Lay is that usually they oh yeah they did a lot of good stuff but then there was that terrible stuff that they did where you know and then we always give them an asterisk out where you go well it was off their time and so uh, but with Benjamin Lay and with Emma Goldman both of them actually lived great lives of integrity. And there aren't these kind of black blotches on them in terms of, uh, of uh, oh, that was a terrible thing that they did, you know? And so, so I find that kind of interesting.
2: I'm taken by what you just said, because one of the things that really always strikes me is who gets the label controversial. Benjamin Lay is considered controversial, but torturing people, kidnapping people, forcing them across a ship and thousands of miles is not controversial. That is what we do. And the same thing, Emma Goldman, both for her her recognition of what had to happen societally, but also for her view in terms of the roles of women. There was nothing controversial about it. She was a woman who was standing up and speaking her truth and she was considered the troublemaker i i know that when i i as a as a child went to the march on washington the police stood back as these terrorists stormed our bus and we were considered the troublemakers for going to the March on Washington. So let's hear it for the troublemakers. <laughs> and, you know, exactly. And thank you for bringing them back to life for us and, and inspiring them us with their lives. Marcus, what about you? What's next for you?
1: Well, as David said, we have a new graphic novel project uh, on pirates, and this is going to be a fascinating challenge because uh, most people don't know that pirates actually were one of the most democratic, uh, self-organized groups of people in their time in the early 18th century. So they built a kind of alternative world, uh, which we're going to evoke in this graphic novel. I think it's going to be quite a new view of who they were and what they thought they were doing. Uh, Beyond that, I'm hoping uh, that David and Paul Buell and I will create a whole series of graphic novels that we will keep going because we've got a, we've got a good team and uh, working well together. So I hope there will be more work beyond that. My other project right now is that I'm writing a history of self-liberated people, formerly enslaved people, uh, who in antebellum America escaped slavery by sea. And this basically is a story about the waterfront as a zone of struggle in which sailors, dock workers, market women, uh, and runaways hatched really daring conspiracies. People got on board those ships and made it to the northern uh, port cities. Uh, And this is something that, you know, for all the tremendous work that's been done on the Underground Railroad, uh, it turns out we don't know very much about how much of it happened at sea. And a lot of it happened at sea. So this is the book that I'm writing now. It's uh, you might call it uh, the Maritime Underground Railroad.
2: Mm, So the sea is given a chance to kind of rehabilitate itself from the transatlantic slave trade.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and Harriet Tubman actually saw it that way. She she basically thought that the movement from the South to the North was a reversal of the yes. Middle Passage.
2: Marcus Rediker and David Lester our guests today. Is there anything more that I might not have thought to ask you that either of you would like to say before we close for today?
0: Well, I would just say that Profit Against Slavery, I think it's a book for for people who are activists, people who who want to be activists, people who who maybe just like a good story of a piece of a little-known American progressive history. I hope the book offers hope to people and inspires people to act and create a better world. And, you know, ultimately, Benjamin Lay was a a person who lived a, a profoundly compassionate, life of simple decency. And those are, uh, that's something that I hope we can all strive for in these rather terrible times that we we are living in. And finally, one of the, uh, there's an old Quaker slogan saying called, quote, let your life speak, end quote. And that's what I tried to do with this book on Benjamin Lay, is because he was so physical in his activism, we, we uh, visually let his life speak. And I don't know if, if it could, if I could say anything that would be better than that in terms of what I was trying to do with
1: the book. Yeah, I would. I would just add to that a message that Benjamin Lay might have for people who read uh, this book, Prophet Against Slavery." Benjamin might say, "You don't like the history we have so far? Go out there and make some history that you do like." And that's the way of the activist. Janice, I have to say, nobody has probed the book as you did. We've, Dave and I have done some uh, interviews, and we've also seen a number of reviews, but. You, you got at the emotional tenor of it, which I really appreciate. Not very many people have, have done that. And, uh, and I think that's uh, a lot of the book's power, frankly. So I'm grateful to you for, uh, for making that part of, your, part of our conversation.
2: Marcus Rediker and David Lester, thank you both so much for being my guests on the show today. David Lester and Marcus Rediker, together they have brought us... Prophet Against Slavery, a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay. Thanks for joining us. My thanks to our guests and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For links to their work and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rabio this show is a production of Janice Adams LLC all rights reserved